Hello and welcome to Publish Me, a monthly podcast series from the AS21 Podcast Network, where we discuss the publishing process of the fantasy epic The Will of the Magi. I'm your host, Keith F. Shelton, publisher of AS21 Media, and joining me as always is... Hello everyone, this is Paul Dickinson Russell, the author of The Will of the Magi. Hope you're doing well this summer. I'm Rana Gaynor. I'm the artist for the book cover, The Will and the Magi, and I can never remember what order people introduce themselves in in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we we always get it wrong, so it works out for us. Don't worry, Rana. We're going to kick Paul to the curb in a couple months, and then you get to take the number two spot, okay? <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the August 2017 edition of the podcast, Chapter 29 Writing What You Know with guest Evan Tucker. He'll be joining us shortly. Uh, we're continuing the process. Of, so last month on, we had on Corey Parker discussing editing updates. Corey will most likely be on next month again, depending on where we are. So for the update, Paul, what's going on? I have a little bit left uh, before I can send a final third to Corey. This month kind of kicked me a little bit in terms of eating up some of my time. And other issues arose that, you know, stole time from me that I would have dedicated to this. So I am about two weeks behind at the moment. So I'm hoping to have final remnants all to him by the 10th or the 11th. Been hellish recently. Yeah. I was going to say, because you, you had told him a month ago that you would have it to him in a couple of days. So, yeah, that, you know, that was when issues started arising. Everything all right? Yeah. I, I feel as though I can trust this audience and trust everyone here. I get to, you know, I get to be one of those wonderful creatives who, you know, has mental issues. So we, for me, um, antidepressants are a Oh. <laughs> Anyone who's listening to this, do not feel sorry for me. Leave it off. I'm just letting everyone know. It's just me working through the right combination with a wonderful doctor. So it's, you know, a week of... What does this do? What does that do? Okay, this works. So that's, you know, that was what happened there is, you know, a new a new med was added in and, you know, we we're working on getting the dosage right. Okay. For anyone who doesn't have those issues, you are lucky. For all the rest of us in the world who do, make sure you get it all right. Otherwise, it's a yeah. My pardon's on the language. That's <laughs> no, okay. We'll bleep it out in post. But, oh, my, yeah. my condolences for you, man. I'm sorry to hear it, but having troubles with that well i mean i will say like you know in all honesty it's like uh, it does suck in those regards but also it's like oh good i can compare myself to every other really awesome writer out there because they all are screwed up <laughs> true as long as i don't stuck being a drunk or an opioid addict i'll be good and luckily one of these medications prohibits me from drinking so i'm good there hey that works <laughs> so yes that is the been the kicker right there but Luckily, these things are putting some pep in my step at the at this late stage, which is why I, I should be done shortly. Wow. Okay. How are you doing, Rana? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm doing okay. Um, a Sanophilia on the the mental health past month, I was also kind of dealing with some stuff, but um, I'm doing better now. I am 
trying harder than ever to find a full-time job. I've been teaching myself UX design and some coding, so try to throw my hat into those rings as well. I'm hopeful. And I'm also uh, starting to work at the Renaissance Fair uh, in a couple weeks as well, so that'll be interesting. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> The very glamorous job of selling French fries to people in costume. Now, now, just to confirm, this is going to be the Virginia Renaissance Fair. No, this is the Maryland Renaissance yeah. Fair. Maryland. Okay. So yeah, my apologies. This is the Maryland Renaissance Fair. Just to confirm that for everyone. So for all of our listeners in that area, that'll go be... there, and find her, and buy some French fries. Yes, that'll be in Crownsville, Maryland, just south of Baltimore. Through the early fall, we, my, my, me and my family go there every year, at least twice a year, so we'll be sure to stop by Rana's booth and feed ourselves accordingly. <laughs> yeah, be sure to get your tickets several days beforehand, because I tried to go last year just as a guest, and like tickets were sold out, and the traffic was terrible because everybody else had discovered the tickets were sold out, and everyone Ooh. was trying to turn around, and it just was not working. So... Don't do what we did! Yes, don't, yeah, don't wait till the last minute, absolutely. Okay. I don't have too much big to announce. I mean, we have a lot of things going on, as always, with AS21 Media. And been busy with a lot of things. So, looking forward to moving on, getting Paul's book out soon, hopefully. And, and then, of course, our other works, our wonderful podcast series, our video series have been doing well. Since it was last on, I went to Virginia Comic-Con in Richmond. It was a two-day affair, and it was nice, and met some wonderful people, saw some very, very interesting costumes, uh, and uh, made some friends, and it was a good time. It's, and it was a bit daunting doing a two-day uh, event, but had some good moments. Yeah, look forward to, maybe not, don't know if we're going to make it back to the show in the fall, but maybe next year going back for a couple of the events. So something to look out for. Time coming ahead. All right, so this is chapter 29 of the Publish Me podcast, which a few more chapters deep than we had thought we were getting to, but that's perfectly fine. It's, this is part of the process, right, Paul? Absolutely. Sadly, but true, this is part of the process. <laughs> so this month, we're talking about writing what you know or bringing your own culture into your writing. For that, we are welcoming AS21 podcaster Evan Tucker. Evan is the writer and producer extraordinaire behind two AS21 podcast series. There's Tales from the Old New Land, which comes out weekly to bi-weekly, depending on your calendar, as he discusses Jewish culture and storytelling from a sort of prairie home companion. And then also the host of It's Not Even Past, A History of the Distant Present, which is a historical podcast looking back at today's headlines. We That is an occasional podcast that pretty much comes out whenever Evan's got something together to go with it. So, Evan, welcome to the podcast this month. Is this where I say something? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Uh, you know, this, it's very weird talking without a script. So, you know, just, uh, I guess, bear with me here. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it's very weird just talking online and knowing exactly what to say. And knowing, you know, it's like the Heisenberg uncertainty because the second the recording is on, it completely changes the way that you talk. Wait, are you telling me you didn't get the script? My assistant should have sent you the script days ago. <laughs> oh, you, oh, you pay your assistant. You don't pay us, but you pay your assistant. 
Yes, my assistant, that's my daughter, Michelle. She's six, so may, her emailing skills aren't quite up to par. But I honestly find it hard to believe that any six-year-old's online skills aren't up to par. <laughs> well, I, I'm also going to say, like, you know, he, do, he doesn't pay his assistant in money. She's six. He pays her in candy. Yes, absolutely. This is sounding creepier and creepier. <laughs> <laughs> if she wasn't my daughter, it would be, but we won't go there. Absolutely. Anyway. All right, we've been working steadily on Tales from the Old New Land for... Has it been a full year now? It has to have been. It was, you know, the idea came out basically... I, it was July 4th last year okay. when we first started talking about it. I don't know, I don't know exactly when we started actually broadcasting. Uh, for a while, basically, I just wrote it by drinking about a half dozen cups of coffee every hour for about three months. And then the ulcer told me to stop. So, um, so I stopped for a while and then I, you know, I, I'm finding out maybe I'm going to switch from coffee to tea and write at a slightly slower pace. And this way I can do a little bit every week or every other week rather than giant spurts of it every month, which ended up being more once every quarter. I think this is a much better way of doing it. Don't you? Yeah. I mean, it seems to be working. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's okay, you know. It's uh, you know, uh, you guys don't understand. Don't understand. You know, you don't even know when you have the Jewish inflections. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just for I checked it. We have eleven episodes out now. The first episode was actually posted on November twelfth. So, oh, that's that's strangely close to now. In my, in my memory, at least. Yeah, that, so that's going um, back 10 months, but we probably started the conversation a year ago. Absolutely, and we must have... I'm sure that it was around this time last year that I was really beginning to knuckle down and start work on it. Um, I have no idea exactly when it was, but uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure I could go back through the old blog and, uh, and check exactly what I was doing. But you know, not that that really tells us much one way or the other. That's one thing, of course, with both of your podcasts, you actually publish your full transcript on your blog before it comes out as a podcast. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe that's not the greatest idea in the world. I have no idea if that gets more uh, readers or listeners or less. Um, my guess is nobody cares. But I think that what ultimately happens is it's just, it's a way of holding myself accountable. So, you know, you just say, all right, well, this is as far as I've gotten today. And, you know, I have something to show for it. And, you know, that way, even if nobody else is reading and the uh, the numbers on my blog say that absolutely nobody's reading except me. Um, yeah, I read it. Well, that, that, I'm very moved. Really, I am. I mean, I have no idea if anybody's reading it or not. I, I People tell me they read it. I'm sure I'm sure that's true. I, I probably have about 50 regular readers, whatever that means. Um, and it used to be much more original content. Now it's just basically whatever I'm writing um, with regards to either fiction or history. So it's an interesting process. You, you go where you can with it, and gradually you rewrite, you rewrite, you rewrite. Everything takes shape. And even as you're narrating, when it's finally time to record, you notice errors, things that should be there that aren't there, grammatical problems, things like that. Because, you know, not all of us are as gifted as editors as we like to be. Mm-hmm. Certainly not as gifted as Keith, for example. And I'm hardly gifted. I feel like it was something I had to say. No, it was not. It's not. <laughs> it's not necessarily true, but you know, I mean, it might be. So no, no. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm fortunate to know and have worked with many much more gifted editors. One, of course, being our uh, Ace Twenty One editor in chief, Corey Parker. So now, Evan, for Tales from the Old New Land, you chose to write your series based off of. 
I mean, it's it's an ongoing story mm-hmm. that you've been working on. It's essentially you're writing a book in real time and producing it straight to audio rather than to print. Yeah, what the f*** is the point of doing this in, uh, in print? I mean, who's going to read it? At least with audio, you're doing something different. You're doing something that isn't necessarily done all the time. Uh, there are a lot of people who do podcasts that are purely chat. And there are a lot of people who do books that are purely books, but, you know, somewhere in the middle is something that isn't necessarily done all that much these days. You know, it's at least, it's a worthwhile experiment to try. The idea is not just to um, have a book, you know, I mean, it is a novel or a a series of tales, you know, I mean, whatever you want to call it. But on the other hand, it's also sort of, I guess, a sketch comedy show. We'll we'll leave it to other people to, to decide whether or not it's actual comedy, you know. And it's also, it's a way to get through certain intellectual concepts. And it's also a way to broadcast a bunch of music, which I'm, I'm told that I'm fond of, mm-hmm. including my own, but other music as well, music I like, um, music by people I like. We'll get to all sorts of different music as, as time goes on as well. Now, of course, one of the major things that has influenced your podcast is your own experiences growing up in Pikesville, Maryland, which is, is it north of Baltimore? I'm not sure exactly. Northwest. Where. Northwest. Northwest Baltimore. Okay. And, and then, of course, uh, the your Jewish culture as well. I mean, that is Pikesville specifically a overly Jewish neighborhood or is it just... Wait, 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 wait. I'm Jewish? <laughs> um, that, that's pretty uh, much, that's the idea yeah, I got. Of it. This is this has been a ruse this entire... I, I, I was apparently misinformed. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I thought I was Mormon, but um, the answer is yes. I, I was, in fact, born of the Mosaic persuasion. It is, in a lot of ways, grounded in that, you know, perhaps too much so. <laughs> you, know, you know, the problem is that when you're born in a milieu that nobody else understands, you basically spend your entire life trying to explain that milieu to everybody else, and everybody else is just like, just shut the f*** up already. But, um, you know, how else do you turn out to be the bundle of neurotic tics that you become? Basically, I just try to explain everything to people who don't understand as Pikesville. And if not Pikesville, then just Jewish. And, you know, I think that covers roughly 80% of, uh, of all my mistakes. Not more than that, I might add. You know, I mean, when it comes to growing up in Pikesville, which is just the most generic name you can have for any town in the world, mm-hmm. um, albeit, of course, when we were growing up, it was known to the greater Baltimore County as Pikesville. Oh, um, <laughs> I mean, come on, it was high school. You know. yeah. Um, yeah. But Pikesville was a, in some ways it was idyllic, in some ways it was most certainly not. It was, you have to think of it as like an artificial 1950s. You know, Jews were the last white people to make it out into the suburbs. You know, we were not even really considered white until, until people of color were able to attain a certain amount of rights. We'll just say white Goyim decided all right, you can't have any more rights. You know, we're cutting it off and you're with us now because we have better enemies. So this whole privilege thing is rather new to just about everybody. Our generation is the first Jews that were even born with the majority being in the upper middle class or, or even the middle class. And it's a very new experience with the results that everybody is a little bit traumatized from 2000 years of, uh, of this it just results that nobody ever knows how to get along with each other. Everybody is always yelling. Everybody is always complaining. And everybody basically wants to kill each other all of the time. But we somehow never do. And somehow the community completely coheres. And it always stays. And we all just sort of stay in this perpetual state of imagining each other's murder. And I often think to myself that this is, in fact, the great secret of being Jewish. That 
the expectations of what life has to give you are so low. You expect so little out of life in comparison to the rest of the world. You are taught from the earliest age to demand nothing. Judaism is literally a portable religion in which um, people who practice Judaism are commanded to obey 613 different rules in the Torah, all of which are designed almost tailor-made to separate you from the rest of the world population. So that wherever you go, the only people that you have anything in common with are other Jews, because they're the ones who practice the same customs and know how to practice the same customs you do. So because of that, we end up doing all sorts of things that people don't really understand. I mean, how do you explain to someone who is not Jewish that on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, we are supposed to attain a greater degree of holiness by taking a chicken by the neck and swinging it over our head three times, and that somehow absolves us of sins. Okay. Obviously, nobody but the most observant Jews do things like that. But that's one of the many, 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 many weird things about the Jewish religion. You know, I've, I've always tried to explain to people, to anyone who's not a Christian, Christianity is a religion of extremely weird beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one yeah. God, but he's really three gods. He's one God, but he comes in three forms, but only three forms. But somehow he's both his own father and his own son, and he's also immaterial. That's weird. <laughs> and, don't, um, and don't make a graven image of him. But we should look right, upon exactly. him with reverence. Exactly, exactly. So, and, okay, and, Jude- and here are these saints, and we should worship them, but not, but we shouldn't have idols. Exactly. That was Catholicism. That yeah, yeah. That well, that that's the entire entertainment of the sep- of the different denominations of Christianity, which I'm just gonna, you know, of what little I do know of Judaism is. Judaism also has its own separate sects as well, if I remember correctly, right? Separate sect? Oh, sects. Okay, I thought you said sex. I was like, well, there, there are stories about that in Judaism, but no. Um, they, uh, but, um, the, the, answer, uh, the answer to that is, of course. But, I mean, here's, uh, you know, the fundamental pro- problem for Jews explaining Judaism to the rest of the world is, in terms of our actual beliefs, they're fairly normal. There's one God. He's everywhere. He does everything. You can't see him. And he gave us a book. Follow the book. Done. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's all of Judaism. Yeah. But yeah. what's in the book and, you know, the customs in, in Christianity, not that weird. You love thy neighbor, confess your sins if you're Catholic, go to mass, try to be redeemed by love. That's easy. Yeah. You know, that's, that's pretty easy. Pretty standard stuff there. Yeah. Pretty standard stuff. How do you explain that we are more holy by not eating shellfish? How do you explain that we're more holy by not mixing linen and wool? How do you explain, uh, I mean, look, I can go through a whole a whole list of this, and that would be in the entire podcast right there. And I but believe the uh, Jed Bartlett did a pretty good recitation on the West Wing. Says, uh, uh, yeah, the West Wing, Jed Bartlett, it's weird. Jed Bartlett had all sorts of things where, you know, I mean, I know that he was was written by a Jew, but there were certain things with Jed Bartlett where I was like, I don't know about this guy. Like, you know, he was talking, you know, one time he got in, into an argument with Toby Ziegler and he says, well, that might pass in a Brooklyn psychiatrist office. And I was like, whoa. Or for that matter, you know, always talking about, you know, how the Old Testament, I mean, this is what we call in Judaism, the adversus judeus, you know, which is the old tradition that the New Testament is love and the Old Testament is hate. And that seemed to be very big with Jed Bartlett, and it's very big with a lot of Christians mm-hmm. um, to this day. And it's not that they're wrong. 
<laughs> you know, that's this is the fundamental point of Judaism. The expectations are so low that hypocrisy is at least a little bit limited. It's not that they're wrong that there's an enormous amount of hate in Judaism. It's like the Seinfeld episode where George Costanza is uh, called in for having sex with a cleaning lady on his desk, and he goes, was that wrong? Should I not have done that? Well, it's basically the same thing in Judaism, you know, when we committed a genocide onto Amalek, and the story of the Ten Commandments is not, in fact, that Moses broke the Ten Commandments, as in the, and as in the Charlton Heston movie, um, the earth opened up and, and all the idol worshippers were dead. What, in fact, happened was that Moses killed 3,000 idol worshippers. The God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, Yehovah, Adonai, Elohim, Hashem, whatever you want to call him, has done a lot of stuff that he should not be proud of, shall we say. But fundamentally, I think that that is the story of the Old Testament and the difference ultimately between not just to the New Testament, but also the Old Testament to ancient Greek literature too. The Old Testament is ultimately about people who are struggling, about families who hate each other, who are cheating each other out of money, who are having affairs behind each other's backs, who are selling brothers into slavery, doing all sorts of things that the worst families that we know do. And what it's ultimately about is that these people are no better than we are. And it's not saying necessarily that that's okay, but it says that you should aspire to do better. And if you can't, Eh, you know, you move on and you can try to do better tomorrow. And that is the fundamental difference to Christianity. Christianity is all about mercy and pity and peace and love. And then, I don't know, uh, you kill a couple million Jews every 500 years. Christian, I, I don't Christianity think that's, becomes the basis for imperialism. It becomes the basis for fascism. I don't feel like that's a requirement. It just sort of seems to happen with, yeah, it just, with regularity. Uh, I, I agree that it just sort of seems to happen, but I often think that it just sort of seems to happen because people get so frustrated that the ideals of Christianity are not quite realizable. Hmm. I often think that, you know, if you aspire to too much, it's not that you will automatically do the opposite, but it becomes a lot more likely that you will. Okay. And Judaism, I think, to me at least, is a religion of managing low expectations. Interesting. I, I wonder if we should put a disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast episode that, like, you know, we're going to be talking about some pretty controversial ideas. <laughs> well, that's why I figured that's why you had me on. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, we'll put something in the write-up. Don't worry. And of course, we can bleep <laughs> out anything truly objectionable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, just bleep out everything I say just the whole time. It's fine. Um, no, it's not that objectionable. But uh, Paul, you were saying uh, it's all just interesting for me since. This is you talking about your knowledge, your history, mm -hmm. essentially, which as I'm, I'm as waspy as you get. So my history is, <laughs> seeing as how my dad's half-brother has done the family tree back to the 700s. Yeah, that'll never um, happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, seeing as how you know, I, you know, I can, my family can A, do that so that's entertainment right there but b you know my family you know has been part of cultures that were never the oppressed group you know we were always right. on the other side of that equation mm -hmm. uh, a you know i had family on both sides of the civil war so that was interesting <laughs> both sides of the revolutionary war so there's that yeah right uh, and right. that 
almost never, ever, ever happens in Judaism. We didn't really even get here till at earliest the 1880s. I mean, yeah. for most, it's not that Jews have not become incredibly involved in issues of social justice and, and the like, because Jews have, you know, since the beginning of the Enlightenment, Jews have always been at the forefront of that. But at right. the same time, the actual fighting of the Civil War, there were as many Jews involved in the Civil War, I'm sure, as were involved in the Peloponnesian War. It's just not part of the Jewish experience. Right. With the Jewish experience, as far as I'm aware, as far as what is taught, I guess, in your terminology, into the Gentile culture. Is, <laughs> yeah, know, just say it, go ahead. It would be that the Jewish culture, the Jewish people are just the oppressed. Well, I mean, that's a very, that's a, that's a to, me, to me, that is, I mean, it's both a very Goyesha way of looking at that. But what's incredibly ironic about that is that, you know, the terminology of the oppressed and the oppressor basically comes from a Jew. It basically comes from Karl Marx. I mean, it, mm. it exists, it certainly existed before, but the idea that basically all history can be boiled down to the oppressor and the oppressed, that's a Marxist concept. Right. But, you know, fundamentally, you know, that's what's weird. It's, it's very, you know, I mean, I'm basically writing the whole sort of what tells me the old movement is about is sort of this contradiction, you know, because on the one hand, when you are from the privileged culture and you look at the less privileged culture, we'll just say less privileged for the moment, since, you know, Judaism is at the moment rather privileged in relation to just about every other minority in the world. And I, I might add that's uh, let, let's let's emphasize that is very new. Right. But the fact still remains that when it comes to Judaism, I'll put it differently. When it comes to just generic Western European white people looking in to what might go on in Judaism, yes, oppression is part of that mix. But because you're looking from the outside in, oppression becomes more of it than it actually is. Mm. You know, it's very difficult to see everything that is influenced by it because when you're looking at it at the first glance, what you see first is the tremendous history of suffering, which is beyond doubt, an enormously important part of Judaism and something that shaped it. But the inner experience of being Jewish, that's just something that happens incidentally once every couple generations. And it mm. shapes the rest of it, but it's not the rest of it. Right. Okay. In any event, Tales from the it's interesting with Tales from the Old New Land, just because I only feel like I've really gotten to what the whole book is in some sense is about this week. I have hit my George R.R. R. Martin point, <laughs> where, where the, I mean, Keith already knows exactly what I'm saying here. The podcast has now, as of this week, fully caught up with the book. So I'm literally writing by the seat of my pants as I go. So, you know, I mean, the book itself is about, in a lot of ways, historical migration. It's about what happened, trying to tell the story by looking through by looking through individual characters, trying to tell the story of a of larger social movements. You know, trying to tell why this happened to Jews and why Jews became these forces within the life of other countries, of other civilizations, and also why other civilizations welcomed Jews into their midst. And the point is. There's a great Jewish writer named Amos Oz, who's an Israeli writer, one of my one of my favorite writers, who talks very much about how you know the most important thing as a writer that you can do is to make your characters as particular as you can. The universal, the way he puts it, is that the path to the universal is through the particular. So the more details you have, uh, and this is you know this is writing 101. It's not like it's that deep an insight, but. Right. You know, the more details you have, the more relatable and the more parallels there are in the reader's mind. 
So Chekhov can write about some something that happens in a you know part of Russia that nobody cares about, but everybody knows. You know, we read that, and we all know a place in Maryland or Virginia that's exactly like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Garcia Marquez can write about a small town in Podunk, Colombia, whatever that means. Yeah. I guess that would be Colombia, Maryland. Sorry if either of you live in Colombia, but. But at the same time, everybody in some ways has family that's from that kind of place, like Maconda. All right. I was just thinking, I just finished reading Light in August by William Faulkner, and yes. he has his oh, yes. a fictional town in Missouri, and he does that with every yeah. main character. I can't, I can't pronounce it, but yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, um, and that's he, he really does a deep dive on every character, where they're from, how they got there. And it's set in 1930s, but the large catalyst of an event that brings them all together is the Civil War. Right. Especially since one of the main characters is for all intents and purposes a white man, but in actuality he is, his father was part black and thus everyone then refers to him with that particular racial epithet that was very common in the 1930s but won't be repeated here. And (laughs) even though he may look white once someone gets wind of the fact that he is of that lineage then everyone suddenly call starts calling him the n-word and that's the end of it well thanks for giving it away it, it, it's in the first chapter <laughs> okay <laughs> i haven't read like so oh, you know i've read as i lay dying i've read short stories like the bear but uh, i mean what a lot of people say is that um southern fiction was a very it was probably the the dominant um, force in American fiction in the first part of the 20th century, and that Jewish fiction was the dominant force in the second. Mm-hmm. And it comes from the same thing. There's an interview that um, Shelby Foote did at one point where he was asked, uh, you know, I forget who it was, maybe it was Charlie Rose, I don't know. And he was asked, why are there so many great Southern writers? And he goes, because we lost. Mm-hmm. You, know, there, you know, loss gives you more stories to tell. Right. And in that same way, you know, um, Jews completely new to privilege, suddenly, um, in the 1950s, find themselves in a situation where they have 2,000 years worth of stories to tell. And suddenly, um, you have just sort of bubbling up out of the deep. You have Bellow, you have Malamud, you have um, Mailer, you have Heller, you have Roth, Ozick, you have, and especially you have Isaac Bashevis Singer, um, the Yiddish writer, who you know, I would stake is as great as any writer in any period, including Shakespeare. We welcome um, differing the, opinions here, no worries. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what listeners do, but, you know. but the the point with all the you know writers generally is that it often it often seems that writing is especially important in cultures where it's almost sort of new to them, where privilege is so new that finally there's a chance to tell hundreds and hundreds of years of oral tradition and of stories. Uh, a lot of people feel like you know. I mean, I, I, and this is, uh, you know, this is not necessarily my point of view, but a lot of people feel that the greatest American writing had already um, happened by about 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, by 100 years, that, that covers Moby Dick, that covers Huck Finn, covers Leaves of Grass and Emily Dickinson, that, that covers quite a bit. By 80 years ago, you get Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, Wolf, Dos Passos, you know, whatever. And, you know, then suddenly we moved on to movies and movies were the dominant. Once sound happens, movies replace books is the dominant force in American life. In the same way, just to give a more obvious example, in the state of Israel, there had been, in a lot of ways, no real Jewish fiction, you know, fiction for the sake of fiction, mm-hmm. instead of, you know, religious parables and things like that. Judaism was a very literary tradition, but actual 
literature, just literature for its own sake that, you know, is not necessarily completely grounded in the religion. It doesn't really happen for nearly 2,000 years now. A lot of people think that certain parts of the Bible were written as literary works that did not have real religious purpose, like, you know, the Song of Songs, which is practically pornography. Mm-hmm. But the point is that there, there are a bunch of those in the writing section of the Bible right. that are not necessarily meant as in any way a sacred document. They were probably, it's entirely possible. And, you know, a lot of religious Jews would have a problem with my saying this, but, you know, I don't give a It's entirely possible that a lot of these documents were included just because they were popular. They were good. They were, in some senses, beloved texts. And because they were beloved, they were, they were in, in a sense, sacred. Right. That was awesome. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> that was a cat. I have no idea whose cat, but that was a cat. That's mine. Good job. The cat has spoken. And the cat came back. (laughs) Oh, wow. That. (laughs) Good night, folks. (laughs) Are you going to pull Costanza and leave the room now? Perfect. Right, been a great audience. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. 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 <laughs> Whenever I hear a cat, the first thing I say, uh, the first thing I think of is Ralph Wiggum putting in cat on the screen and then going, "I'm learning." <laughs> all right, and there's the Simpsons reference. All right, we're hitting all the yeah. the major points yeah. there. Hitting all the all the requirements. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. absolutely. <laughs> Special guest, Faith the Cat. <laughs> Whatever happened to Eek the Cat? That was, that was a great show back in the day. Oh, I love Eek the Cat. Nobody I know knows that show existed, but I remember that show. Oh, I love no, that it's show. Amazing. It's amazing. Oh, I, I remember there was an episode um, where they went to visit California and the big earthquake hit, but instead of California sinking into the ocean, the rest of the United States sunk into the ocean. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Eek did, and they had to get him out. Yeah. Um, but no, that, sound, that sounds more likely. Yeah. And they're, they're getting ready to leave California. They're like, all right, everybody, roll up your windows. <laughs> that. Back to more serious matters. Let's pretend we're professionals for a second. Yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't stopped. I'll show myself. Um, we're professionals? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's clear we're not. But, you yeah. know. <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully one day. I mean, you know, Keith. Yeah, it's all on you. I know we're working on it. We're working. Out. The only thing I'm a, I'm a professional is being a professional nut job. I'm sorry, that's the only professional thing I can do. Um, we're all professional. I'm, I, I, I'm gonna stick the Roy Fagan and Mr. Evan up on you, Keith. If you're not. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I knew that's what would happen as soon as I started appearing on your podcast. Now I'm going to have to deal with the, the Russian mobsters. Yeah. <laughs> right. well, you, know, you know where this is going. Yes, I do, unfortunately. I do have a question for Evan. Um, yes, so you, you talk about your podcast as sort of just an audiobook in progress. Why do you describe it that way as opposed to just like a, an audiobook serial, like, I don't know, Night Vale or the old like radio mysteries, like Dick Tracy and all that? You know, that's a good question. The answer to that is, I I don't have a good answer to that, except to say that I part of part of growing up where I did was I uh, you know I, I I can only answer this narcissistically. 
I grew up in sort of a parallel universe to the rest of my generation. So, you know, the popular entertainments that um, most of my generation grew up on did not occur. I grew up in a perhaps a slightly pretentious world of high culture. So what ended up happening was that, I, you know, I became, I grew up playing violin. I was going to become a professional violinist. And then when I'm 16, I finally started playing rock bands. I grew up not listening to rock music until I was, and basically until I was in college, I grew up not knowing about graphic novels until I was in college, didn't, didn't read even something like Alan Moore of Watchmen until I was you know, maybe 25. You know, the whole tradition that things like Welcome to Night Vale operate in was not really part of formation. So, you know, when, when I think of what it is, I think in terms of it's basically a serialized 19th century novel or something like A Thousand One Arabian Nights or Tales of Genji, you know, things like that in which it's rolled out sort of one story at a time. Whereas the truth is probably that it is a lot closer to Welcome to Night, Night Vale, except, you know, maybe not as good. Thousand One Arabian Nights, I can kind of see that, just like a sort of, you know, bit by bit folk tales that sort of mm-hmm. overlap on one another, like, well, if you like that story, you'll like this story. Well, that's pretty close to what I'm trying to get through this. That's fairly close to my idea of what this is going to be. The idea, I... In my mind, this story is going to go on until, you know, I'm retirement age. I have no idea if Keith's publishing company will still be around. We very much hope it is, Keith. <laughs> don't make me stick the Russian mafia on. Oh, no. uh, you think I'm kidding, don't you? With bad so, as I know you're not. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the basic idea is to keep this going and to develop as a network of events that happen in the stories that get more and more intricate and more and more tied together until... In some sense, at least, you see this sort of giant wheel of history that's happening over the course of thousands of years. And I know that that's an incredibly grandiose claim to make, but, you know, we'll see what I'm doing when I'm 62. Or shall I say when I'm 64? There, yeah, there you go. Beatles reference. Nice. So, see, see, I know we're in pop culture. Now. Okay. All I'm worrying about right now is as long as you don't have some prince or princess behind you Threaten to kill you every night that you don't record. So you know, have to tell these things. That's all I'm worrying about right now. Oh no, that's the voices in my head. Don't worry. Good um, motivation. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've got my motivation is coffee. Don't worry about that. Um, you know, I mean, the greatest piece of wisdom I ever heard was: you can do anything you put your mind to. All you have to do is consume heart attack-inducing amounts of coffee, and that's absolutely true. And like Tyrion Lannister, I'm passing off my own inspirational quotes as ancient wisdom. So, you know, once again, I'm up with the pop culture. Uh, you know, I'm down with the coffee. And I know things. Yeah, yeah. I, know the... things. I drink and I, I drink coffee and I know things. There and there's know. the official Game of Thrones reference thrown in. Yes. Uh, we had George R.R. R. Martin cited, but now the official reference to it. Okay. Well, just to throw another reference in there, too. Now... I noticed a lot with a lot of the Jewish literature I consume, whether it be listening to your podcast or reading Philip Roth or some others, there is usually a lot more introspection and a lot more criticism of Jewish religion and culture than I've seen in a lot of the books that seem to look at Christianity, save except for, of course, the Dan Brown books. (laughs) Well, that's because Christianity is fundamentally a choice. If you've left Judaism, let me put this differently. When you're in the modern era, you are not necessarily born into Christianity, even if you were in a family that was historically Christian. You know, the the events by which your family may have left Christianity may have happened two or three or four generations ago. 
And as far as you know, you're in a family of atheists or pagans or whatever else or Buddhists or, you know, it doesn't really matter. And that is the ethos you grew up with. And, you, you know, in many ways, you're somewhat unconnected with it. So if you assume Christianity and if you want to take on the mantle of Christianity, it's a choice by which you can always ignore it. Right. Ignoring Judaism is not an option at least not yet, and maybe not ever. If you're born into Judaism, you're born into it. There is no getting around it. It is a birthright. It is an inheritance. And it's an inheritance that many, many, many people don't want. And a lot of secular Jewish writers, the most obvious, of course, is Philip Roth, obviously also Woody Allen, but we won't get into that. But in both those cases, the main influence is sort of this, not just a criticism, but in some ways, at least in Roth's case, a love-hate relationship with it, where at the same time, you have great affection for the thing you hate. Now, even that is something that, let's just say, in Goetia culture, in Western European culture, which is very big on individual rights and choice and things like that, it doesn't really occur to people that you can love and hate the same things at the exact same time. If a relationship goes south, it ends. Obviously, that is a new conceit, and you know Catholicism doesn't agree with it. But then again, Catholicism is not a Northwestern European concept. It comes from Rome. The idea that if you don't like an idea, you don't have to follow it, that's also something that comes from Northwestern Europe. You know, Judaism is a much more Mediterranean thing. And I'm tempted to say that it's closer to Eastern religions and how holistic it is. But at the same time, whereas there is a sort of passive acceptance in a lot of Eastern religions, Judaism, the best way to explain it is to say that, to take the word Israel, Yisrael, which means he who wrestles with God. The whole criticism is the whole idea of it. It's the whole point of it. The whole point of it is to engage with the ideas actively and to basically subject it to as rigorous a critique as you can. Because at least the Jewish point of view is, or would be, that if you don't subject it to a rigorous critique, if you don't put up the greatest possible resistance, how do you know if it's true? Wow. And that makes for a very, very different, not just value system, but very different mindset and state of being and way of looking at the world than anybody who was not born into this culture, we won't say religion, but culture, would ever have. You know, in the case of particularly Protestant, I mean, Keith, you grew up Catholic, didn't you? No, I grew up Presbyterian. My my father was Catholic, and he converted to Presbyterianism upon marrying my mother. Thank you for Catholic this whole time. No, no. Yeah, everything I've said so far has been completely full of shit, so you know, know, let's do this again tomorrow. No, but I mean, I grew up in Presbyterian church, and about the time I reached 16, I realized a lot of the stuff I was hearing out of them was predominantly bull****. So I... Yeah. Because I, I was never a big fan of predestination. I Understood. I, I, believed, I believed that there was... There had to be free will. There's no way that this is all a plan and we're all sticking, sticking to the script, as it were. And mm-hmm. the things seem too random. Right. That there could be some guy. So really, I I describe myself nowadays as deist. I believe in God, but I don't believe I need to now, attend church. All, all I all I can say in response to that is that when it comes to uh, when it, like, so many things on Game of Thrones are blowing up, I have to get out of the internet just completely. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so yeah, apparently, but... this was the best episode this year. I'm just saying. 
Yeah, and for a little bit of inside baseball, yes, we are recording this podcast on Sunday night, August 6th, so we're really right yeah. up against our deadline. Uh, you know, I'm preparing right now to teach a Jewish literature course and uh, basically on a community college level. So, I'm, you know, I'm doing basically all my free time is reading books that are Jewish-led, so I don't even have time for podcasts right now. It's kind of a shame, but except obviously for listening to myself do Old New Land 24 hours a day. Because, um, you know, like Donald Trump, I like listening to myself. Oh, did we but, we didn't need that reference in this podcast. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, you, can, you. you can you can you can you uh, can scratch it. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, granted, you know, you might get reported to uh, to the Justice Department if you do, but you know, that's the problem. Yeah. That's your problem. So you know, maybe it's my problem too. Okay? But the what were we talking? About? <laughs> <laughs> sorry for the sorry. Like subjecting your beliefs to rigorous. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Criticism, and then Keith brought up predestination, and like actually, I have something to add to that. My sister is super Christian. Mm-hmm. My father happens to be Jewish. Um, mm-hmm. He's a nice Jewish boy from the Bronx. Nice. Uh, he, so he grew up. He grew Might up. Have been Jew- neighbors with my cousins. He grew up Jewish, but um, like we're a very atheist family. Like we celebrate Christmas mm-hmm. with tree and all that jazz, but like uh, we don't do very much that's extremely religious. But like right. my sister, every time my sister brings up Israel. Um, oh boy. She's always just like, Oh my god, Rana, you you're half Jewish. You are you are one of God's chosen people. Like, oh my god. That's so I used to cool. be a citizen of Israel. It's the greatest thing ever. And I'm well, like, uh In high school for two minutes I dated this girl who was super Christian and she would say to me, Evan, I love you, but you're going to hell. Um <laughs> so Well, she's but, not wrong. Um, well, no, she's emphatically not. But the point with that, you might be surprised to find out how common that story is. People, you know, Jews who leave Judaism behind and then one of the children, doesn't have to be all of them, but one of them decides that there's a certain lack of spirituality that's missing in their life. And they don't go back to Judaism. They go straight to Christianity. It's almost like, you know, by becoming atheists, they've, they've become Christians in reverse. Hmm. I've often thought to myself, and this is an entirely heretical thought that has you know, no basis in any reality but my head, probably. But I have often thought that Judaism sort of exists pre-faith. You know, Judaism, when it was founded, whether it was the 8th century BC or whenever it was, faith was not really in the equation yet because it was basing itself on the best scientific knowledge that it had at that moment. Whereas Christianity was operating with the classical tradition in the background. You know, it was a declaration of faith against the new science. Right. So in that way, at least, maybe Judaism is you're in that way. You know, questions of faith with Judaism don't really matter in the same way. You know, in Judaism, one of the big differences between Judaism and Christianity is how much Judaism is a religion of actions. You know, it is, it's a tactile religion in a lot of ways because it's literally you are supposed to be Jewish in everything you do. You are supposed to say at least 100 blessings a day. You know, I mean, in Islam, you pray five times a day, so it's not exactly unique, but you're supposed to pray three times a day. And the prayers, certainly in the morning, are rather long. You're supposed to be able to do all sorts of things over the course of an entire year that distinguish you. And, you know, just by the simple manners of how you dress, the languages you speak, the books that you study, you are completely separated from the rest of the community. So whether or not you have faith doesn't really come into it because you're already Jewish before faith even really has anything to do with it. Hmm. 
So anyway, I mean, that's, that is a very personal explanation and personal view of a very complex question, which I should not pretend that I have any answers to, though I always obviously do. Well, I mean, when you think about the history, what, unfortunately, what the Jewish people has gone through, it's kind of understanding that for so long, so many people were, well, oppressed, criticized, ostracized because they were Jewish, that that has become the defining thing. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, that's certainly right. I mean, you, you can't deny that, that, you know, ultimately the suffering is in some sense is the point. But at the same time, you know, the idea that virtue is attained through suffering, that in itself is a Christian concept and does not necessarily apply to Judaism. True. The point even more fundamental than, to me at least, even more fundamental than, you know, the suffering of the Jewish people, the ultimate point of what the Jewish people undergo is what, or I'll put it like this, what interests me, and I think is a more fundamental question, is why did the Jews suffer like this? What was it about Jewish people that has so turned off so many different cultures and so many different civilizations yeah. that they will go to the ends of the earth to rid themselves of this incredible pestilence of people who are, you know, just uh, kind of a little pushy? And that's the worst you can say about them. You know, they add immeasurably in every, in culture after culture after culture, they have achieved immeasurably, they have done all sorts of things, they have contributed, not just obviously uh, to the wealth of the nation, but also to its learning, to its science, to its culture, to its arts and humanities, to every field of endeavor. The Jews have been almost like a yeast that has leavened cultures, and somehow because the Jews are just a little bit different just slightly different. Things are slightly askew with them, don't quite add up in the minds of their host countries. They are seen as parasites. They're thrown out. And the moment they're thrown out, the culture seems to decline. And this sort of seems to happen over and over and over again. And, you know, I mean, when I talk about historical migration, this is sort of the process that I'm talking about more than anything else. Right. And, you know, it's proven. I have a high school teacher I'm still in touch with. It's not that I've ever read Arnold Toynbee, but, you know, he talks about Toynbee, and Toynbee is very far down my list. If I live to my 70s, I'll, I'll read Toynbee's history. But Toynbee was one of those guys like Oswald Spengler, or I guess John Batista Vico, who talks about how civilizations have their rises and falls, uh, whereas some of those other guys were rather philo-Semitic. Toynbee became an anti-Semite because he realized that Jews, for whatever reason, was the only civilization where he could not mark its rise and fall. And he didn't understand why that was. And because of that, he he decided that there has to be something parasitical about it. And, you know, the idea that Jews are in some sense parasites runs through history everywhere. In every age, they come up with their own version of it. And it's like a virus that you can never quite eradicate. Wow. And we and we see, uh, you know, to a certain extent, even here in America, and, you know, especially just in the last couple of years, we're seeing it more and more. You know, on the right, obviously, we're seeing it with the Breitbart crowd. And I think it, it bears mentioning Andrew Breitbart, absolutely Jewish. Yeah. But then he was, but then Breitbart was taken over by Steve Bannon, not a Jew. Definitely not. Emphatically not a Jew. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly this whole idea that Jews have infiltrated America and have prevented, and you know these these weak liberal Jews have prevented America's national greatness has been resurrected in America, and at the same time on the left we see this idea that there is, and let me give the proviso: regardless of how you feel about Israel, one can have many feelings about Israel, some of which are good, some of which are bad, and many are acceptable. But then there is this idea that there is this weak, sh- that not this strong, shadowy 
Israel lobby that pulls all of the strings of American foreign policy, and everyone is in on it from the Christian coalition on the right to the New York Times on the left. Mm-hmm. And this is this is something actually that started with two conservative intellectuals in um, in international affairs, Stephen Walt and John Mearsheimer, but was then taken up by all manner of of leftists. And this is now a pervasive belief in among socialists all across America, all across the world, really, that somehow there is, you know, that the, the Israel lobby, which is admittedly powerful, is a hundred times more powerful than it actually is. And I mean, if you ask any Jew who is, let's just say, if you ask 99% of practicing Jews, they will tell you that this is the old blood libel just in new form. So, and, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, the, if, you know, you can't criticize Israel. I mean, everybody, all, all Jews say that criticizing Israel is anti-Semitic. And to a certain extent, it's absolutely true that Jews are much too sensitive when it comes to criticizing Israel. Right. Um, th- that, that cannot be doubted. The flip side of that is assuming that Israel is the absolute modus operandi of American foreign policy, that everything is done on the behalf of Israel, or assuming that Zionism is in itself something that is unconscionably racist when all Jews have done is try to insist on the same national self-determination that every other country got. But somehow, because it happened before 1945, when everybody decided that nationalism was something that was terrible, they all got in before 1945 when nationalism was okay. But Israel was in 1948 when suddenly national self-determination was decided to be the scourge of everybody, the scourge of all humanity. You know, as Eric Hoffer, one of my favorite thinkers, says, who is not Jewish, I might add, said, often Israel, the one Jewish nation in the world, is expected to be the world's one Christian nation. Right. <laughs> what else you want to know? <laughs> oh, we covered a lot there, <laughs> and we've been talking for over an hour here, so we got... Yeah, that's, not that's, too probably, much. that's pretty much me just running my motor mouth. So. Yeah, and there's not much um, to cut out, so... <laughs> So this is going to be a long episode going out there. So uh, I'll just open it up. Last thoughts, Rana, Paul, anything you want to ask Evan before we yeah. release? Final thought. That's Jewish too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, bringing it all back together to Evan's podcast. Oh, well done. Are all, these, <laughs> are, are all, all these ideas uh, that we spent the last hour talking about? Are you presenting these in your podcast as just as sort of like a research project, or are you sort of? weaving it into the narrative or um... uh, the, the, se- the second without a doubt you know the whole point it's not even necessarily to dramatize the ideas but just to sort of say that this is how it might be it you could say that it, this is how this process is how it happens the process of how the story unfolds it doesn't necessarily mean that that's how it happens it's not i, I don't want to say that there's like a one-to-one correlation just that there's that there are similarities you know the point ultimately is to tell a decent story you know, which hopefully I'm doing, you know, who, who that knows. And, you know, hopefully somebody is out there who vaguely likes it. You know, if, if there's one person who vaguely likes it, well, that sucks. And, you know, why the hell am I doing this? But, you know, for the moment, that's what we'll live with. Interesting. I will say that was actually my question as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, glad I could talk your ears off here. Sorry if I stepped on anybody. That's okay. We usually let our give our guests the latitude to be able to speak their piece and you know, feel like that they've contributed. I feel like I've vomited, you know, 45 minutes worth of material here. I could probably vomit, vomit another 45 if you needed it, but, you know, let me watch Game of Thrones first. Um, <laughs> you know, the most goyish TV show that's ever been made, I might add. Because, you know, Goyim have good things to do, too. Though I'm, I, one should also add Game of Thrones, 
basically all Jews are just, you know, focused on other Jews. And, you know, I mean, what do people talk about in Pikesville? People outside of Pikesville, who's Jewish and who's not Jewish. So, you know, any celebrity, the first, you, you could literally go, a whole Friday night dinner can be spent just bringing up random celebrities and saying, is he Jewish? No, is, is he Jewish? Years ago, I used to go with my uh, Bubby to midnight mass with her best friend. And the, she would take me as a kid. And the two of them would just sit there in midnight mass, you know, at a Catholic church, and would just one of them would point to some guy and a couple rows up and go, see that guy over there? I think he's Jewish. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, and that was, you know, that, that, that I mean, that's literally what people talk about in Pikesville. Anyway, the, the, the reason I'm saying this is just that, of course, George R.R. R. Martin, you know, as goyish as it comes, even though he's from, I think, Queens. Um, so he must have grown up with thousands and thousands of Jews around him all the time. But Weiss and Benioff, the guys who actually make the series, both Jews. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like the Jews leavened his mainstream appeal. Um, well. Not that <laughs> you laughed a little too hard at that. <laughs> I like well, well, I just have to say the most probably well-known Jewish song in American culture today is Adam Sandler's The Hanukkah Song, which is literally just a list of Jewish people. In... Oh, well, that's absolutely true, unless you count all of the old Christmas songs, which oh, were all written by Jews. How many Irving Berlin Christmas songs are there? Just uh, there, Harold Arthur. I don't even remember. And then my favorite irony, Bob Dylan recently put out a Christmas album. Yes. So, you know, you, well, you get Well, Barbara Christmas... put one out, too, so... <laughs> Well, yeah, absolutely. But in, in Bob Dylan's case, this is what Christmas albums would sound like if it was sung by the Angel of Death. So, <laughs> Oh, poor Bob. Our Nobel laureate. We have to continue to remind ourselves of that. <laughs> yes, Bob Dylan is our Nobel laureate. The rest of us can go f*** ourselves. You know, it's not much one can do there, I guess. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us this month, Evan. And be sure to check out Tales from the Old New Land, available on Podomatic and wherever podcasts are available, including media.as21.com. And to find Evan, furthermore, your blog is, it's on Blogspot, right? Yeah, it's just eventucker.blogspot.com. And these days, it's basically just Tales from the Old New Land. Yes. With a few exceptions. And, and of so, course, you know, if you are a, written for if you are a listener seven. to Tales from the Old New Land, that is Evan in almost all iterations of voice yeah i do i do just about all the voices except for keith's yes well, i'm working on that i'm trying to do a yinzer accent and it's, it's, it's not coming to me yeah, you better know. to go to the real thing <laughs> yeah, yeah all right well thank you very much Evan. Right. thank you all right and as always thank you to rana and paul for joining me this month this has been chapter 29 of the publishing podcast remember you can find us on Podomatic, apple podcast stitcher radio tune in google play and media.as21.com you can reach out to us on facebook facebook.com slash publish podcast on twitter at publish podcast or email us publish podcast at as21.com for as 20 media i am keith f shovlin i'm ron gainer and i'm paul dickinson russell remember where there are thoughts and ideas there are stories we'll see you next month Copyright 2017, AS21 Publishing, LLC. All rights reserved. AS21 Publishing. What do you want your book to be?